beg your pardon, I'm going to throw a little wrench in our normal procedure. I'm going to open in prayer, and then we're just going to read the text as we go through our sermon today, if that's all right with you guys. So if you would, join me in prayer, and then we will begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day. Lord, we thank you for uh, the sunshine today, Lord, even though it will be hot. We give you praise, Lord, that the sun continues to shine. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our beds and into worship this morning. Lord, we thank you for the worship that we have had so far, Lord, in song and in liturgy, Lord, in hearing your word read. Lord, we pray, God, that as we continue in your word this morning, Lord, that our minds and hearts and ears would be open to hear and to believe and to understand. Lord, we pray as we continue to worship through Eucharist and further singing, Lord, in prayer, God, that our worship would be in spirit and in truth. And we pray all of these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. So in our text for this week, again, I appreciate you all uh, letting me flip things around a little bit. But in our text for this week, you'll notice as we go through this, Paul starts to blend once again. He's done this already. He did this our first week. He starts to blend this teaching of orthodoxy and orthopraxy really in a very Lucan format. Right? He, he uses bookends. Uh, either Luke learned it from Paul or Paul taught it or Paul did it and he learned it from Luke one way or the other I don't know but there's some book endings in this text for today and we'll see this so continuing in the, within that framework of orthodoxy and orthopraxy so right so right belief about God right belief about Christ and the gospel and then the proper working out of that faith Paul uses the bookends of orthopraxy that is held firm by filling up the shelf with orthodoxy so to illustrate this out for a moment, right? and all of you, I know you all get the illustration, but I'm going to use it anyway. right? So if you are one of those crazy people that for some reason doesn't have enough books to fill up your shelf, right? I say that in jest. Right? I'm not insulting anyone that doesn't. But if you don't happen to have enough books to fill up your shelf, you need something to hold the books in place. Right? Like you need something to give it stability. Otherwise, everything is just going to fall over. Right? Books will fall off the shelf. They'll get in the floor. Uh, one of them happens to hit the dog, and it will yelp, right, like the world is ending. One, the heaviest one, for some reason, when it falls off the shelf, finds its way on your barefoot. I mean, this is just how books work for some reason. But like a good set of bookends, the practice of the faith means nothing without good orthodoxy. Right? We don't, you don't need bookends if you don't have any books, right? So like we said in the first week, this is really the other side of the coin that James gives us in his letter. We show our faith by our works, yes, but we should also show that our orthopraxy, our works, is actually orthodox. And the way in which Paul frames this text for today points us to that reality. And so starting here on one end of the bookshelf, and we'll just make our way across this morning, we come to this first bookend of orthopraxy in verses 6 and 7 there at the beginning of your bulletin where Paul briefly explains that our orthopraxy is a result of the good orthodoxy that he has already laid out. Listen to what he says in these first two verses. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So he begins with that word, therefore, right? If, and this is, 
an age-old preacher joke, but it has to be made because it always holds true. Right? You, when you come to the word therefore in the New Testament, especially in Paul, right, you have to ask that really annoying question. What is the therefore therefore? Right? Why did he put the therefore there? Right? So in this case, think about what we've unpacked just over the last two weeks, especially last week in chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. He says here, therefore, therefore, you who were once alienated, you were hostile in mind, you were doing evil deeds. You have been reconciled to God through the flesh of Christ by his death. If you continue in the faith of the unified gospel message that you have believed, be steadfast and stable. Right. So therefore, since you have received Christ, walk in him, just walk in him, be rooted and built up in Christ, be established in the faith in Christ, just as you have been taught. Colossians, just as you have been taught by Epaphras, who came and sowed the seed of the gospel among you, and just as you have been taught Colossians and even us right now so far in this letter and what we've looked at, walk in Christ and abound in thanksgiving. So consider what Paul is telling us here in relation to our orthopraxy, our practice of the faith. He has, he's instructing the Colossians, he's instructing us, he's already instructed us in the faith through chapter 1. And so now he takes a moment to give us more instruction, but now on how to live in that faith, that right faith that he has explained. And notice here in verse 6 at the beginning that all of this instruction, other than the word therefore, all of this instruction is, is predicated on their reception of Jesus as the Lord, of Jesus as Savior and God. Because remember, we cannot have good orthopraxy without good orthodoxy. Right? He writes again, he says, therefore, as you have received as you received Christ Jesus. He distinguishes here, just in that one word, the Colossians, or even us, from those who were trying to tempt them away from right orthodoxy. Remember, this, this heresy that's being peddled among Colossians, because, the Colossians, because this is important for the context of understanding why he's framing the letter this way. They're peddling this weird, blended, Gnostic, Judaizer, somewhat Eastern mystical heresy to the Colossians, And they were telling the Colossians that they had not really been taught the true faith in Jesus because there was this other different secret knowledge that they needed that only they could teach the Colossians. And so Paul is again reminding the Colossians here. He's saying, look, you have received the unified gospel message. You have received the unified message of Christ that has been proclaimed throughout the world that he's told us through chapter 1. And this is the same message that has been proclaimed since the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is the message that they had received, and this is the message that they had believed. So walk in it, he tells them. But notice something else here that's really quite interesting. Verse 6 is a very action-oriented verse. Again, he writes this, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The Greek word that Paul uses here, I can't pronounce the word itself, or at least I didn't try too hard to figure out how to pronounce it. But I did look at the tense, right, because it is important. The tense, and I'll explain it a couple of ways, but it is an active word, but it's also an imperative present verb, right? I know that's, get your head all wrapped up, and that's fine. But it's an active imperative present verb, which means... It indicates movement. It indicates continuation. But also, because it's an imperative, it indicates that it is a command. And so notice what Paul does in verse 6 alone is he, he gives them all three tenses of past, present, and future. And he says, you have received Christ in the past. It is a reality. 
but they were also presently to dwell in Christ because they have received Christ. So they continue to walk in Christ by continuing to be steadfast and actively moving forward in Christ. And he captures this aspect of our orthopraxy by listing then four characteristics in verse 7 as what this active command should look like. He starts there, he says that we are able to walk in Christ because after having received Christ, we have been rooted, or some translations might read, firmly rooted in Christ. Notice just how that word itself, it is, a, it is both a past and present reality. By God's will of qualifying us in Jesus, we have been planted into Christ and we have rooted in Christ. If you do any gardening whatsoever, you know the importance of rooting a plant, right? Or if you try to plant bushes or trees in your yard and for some reason they just won't stay alive, right? You know the importance of a plant rooting in order for it to thrive and survive and to give you its fruit. This is why a lot of gardeners, and I don't know if you guys do this, but a lot of gardeners will start their seeds early, right? They'll use seed trays and they'll use even grow lights so that way... Sometimes they can get a couple of harvests out of it, right? Because they can start tomatoes in January if they're inside in a greenhouse or something. Because doing that, they're able to have a little more control over the viability of their crops. Consider just how this rootedness works in the Christian life, especially now that the Colossians' orthodoxy is being challenged, or even today as our own orthodoxy is being challenged by new and different kinds of heresies or reworkings and repackagings of old heresies. The gospel has been sown among the Colossians. It's been sown among you. It's been planted into your hearts. The Holy Spirit, through his work, has tended the soil of your heart. And God has given the growth, and you have been rooted in Christ Jesus. But second, he says, be rooted and built up. He writes that they are presently being built up. This is, this is an example of that continual action of being rooted in Christ. So we can consider the church like a house or, or a building even, but a house that is need, under need of constant renovation, right? Construction is continuing in the congregation as it's being fashioned more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus. There's, I've got a great personal illustration of this, and Sharon knows what I'm talking about the moment that I mention it. My grandfather's house in Mississippi was quite interesting, right? It's still standing. We, we had to sell it last year because my grandparents have passed on. And anyway. But when they bought the house, right after they got married in 1956, it was a small dwelling. It had two bedrooms, a bathroom, a small living room, and a kitchen, and a carport, right? That was it. Normal size house, right? By the time my grandmother died in 2009 and my grandfather died in 2019, that house had turned into a very odd-shaped monstrosity because he just kept adding on to it, right? It ended up essentially with four bedrooms, three living rooms, Two dining rooms and a whole mess of other stuff <laughs> because here's how it happened, all right? So my grandparents had three children, my dad and his two sisters. So to give them a little bit more space, he closed in the carport, right? And then he added a new carport. Well, he eventually closed in the new carport, right, and made it into kind of a den. So their living room turned into a sitting room, right? And then the den turned into the area where when they bought a television, they eventually had a television, right? Well, then, with a shovel, he hand-dug a basement and finished that. The man was hardcore, right? <laughs> and then he enclosed the back patio. 
Well, since he enclosed the back patio, he had to get to the patio from inside the house, so he went off the back door and made an enclosed hallway to the back patio that he had enclosed. And then he built a sunroom off of the enclosed back patio, which is where we had Christmas growing up. And then, because they are primitive Baptists, or were primitive Baptists, they had visiting pastors all the time coming to their church. He built an extra bedroom with a bathroom off of that enclosed patio and sunroom to give that pastor and his wife some privacy when they would come and stay, right? This house was massive, right? I mean, it, 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 it was simple when it was built, but it had twists and turns. It was a fun place to play as a kid. But this being built up, right, it's like God is constantly working, right? He's constantly sanctifying his people. He's constantly building them into something that is usable and is glorifying to him. Matthew Henry writes, he says, we cannot be built up in Christ unless we be first rooted in Christ. And we must be united to Christ in a living faith and heartily consent to his covenant, and then we shall grow up in him. But then third in this verse, in verse 7, Paul uses another past and present tense phrase when he writes this. He says, we are established in the faith, and we continue to be established in the faith that we were taught. Matthew Henry, again, he writes here, he says, being established in the faith, we must abound in it and improve in it more and more. There's a continual action. And once again, this takes us back to that unified message of the gospel of Christ that has been taught throughout the entire world that Paul has spent all of chapter 1 unpacking. And notice here, there is an implied orthodoxy and orthopraxy in these two verses. The orthodoxy is that they had received the true message of Jesus. They have received and believed the true message of his incarnation in the flesh, his bodily death, his bodily resurrection. But also, their orthopraxy in living out of that faith, they have been established in the truth, so they are to continue to walk in him, continue to move forward in him. Walk according to the knowledge of the unified message of Christ that you have received. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to God, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, as he writes in chapter 1, verse 10. And then finally, he ends this verse. He says that, that in the present and in the future, we are to be abounding in thanksgiving. This is what walking in Christ looks like. It's what it requires. This is that overflowing joy and thanksgiving that we saw in Isaiah 66 last month. Our thankfulness in Christ is so abundant that it overflows out among one another, but also outwards toward the world around us. We have received Christ Jesus the Lord just as we have been taught. So overflow then with thanksgiving. But then we come to verse 8. And Paul does something that so far, at least in this letter, he's kind of hinted at, but he hasn't really done directly. Now, he directly goes after this heresy. He's, he's talked about it. He's, he's given reasons why it's heretical. But he's not really taking a swipe at it yet. Now, he's, now he's, he's punching at it a little bit. So if we were to continue with that bookshelf illustration, and if you're like Sharon and I, we have way too many books, but like we don't even have any, as many, we don't even have enough bookshelves for all the books we have. Plenty of them are still in boxes, right? We still have too many books. But continuing with that illustration, if you're thinking of heresy, it's that book that just doesn't fit on the shelf, right? You've you've got a whole shelf full. It doesn't seem to go anywhere. You've tried to shove it in over here and maybe pack it in over there, and it just it doesn't work. So it just ends up sitting off to the side. That's okay. When it comes to heresy. You know, throw it away. But notice what Paul says about this heresy in verse 8. He says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, 
according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So he warns them, right? He says, look, don't don't let anyone take you captive by these things. He warns them against being taken in by false teaching. And then he uses this arsenal of negative terms to describe this heresy. Terms which really leave us without any doubt as to Paul's feelings on, on this teaching that's invading the church. And his implication here is that if believers follow the instructions that he has already laid out, then they will be immunized against this error, right? Remember what you have been taught. Walk in what you have been taught. To put it simply, he wants us to rest and to trust in the orthodox gospel of Christ for how we live out our orthopraxy, how we live out our faith. But note how strongly Paul sees this false teaching. He says, see that no one takes you captive. Paul views this in the exact same way that we would view an enemy force coming over the hills in battle. Right? He's telling us that all heresy and the embracing of heresy by people that have confessed Christ, it is spiritual warfare. It's war. It's battle. And so he tells us, he's, be on guard. Don't fall prey to the enemy. Don't be taken hostage under the guise of a lofty philosophy. And then he uses that term to describe this teaching, which all scholars that I have read, whether that be through the fathers or through the reformers or even on until today, say that these teachers called themselves philosophers, right? So Paul's not making up a term and, and, and hating on them. He's using their own language against them. He calls them philosophies. But something that's important here, I think, to keep in mind, because if you have been like me and you've been in little backcountry churches every now and then, this term philosophy comes up and people automatically go, well, then we need to ignore philosophy because it's of the devil, right? Paul is not denouncing philosophy, right? Philosophy is simply the study of the nature of knowledge or of reality or even existence in its own way, kind of. Theology is a kind of philosophy, right? Because we're talking about the existence of God and how that works in our lives. So philosophy isn't bad, but he tells us, he says, philosophies that are of empty deceit, that's a different kind of story. And speaking on this empty deceit, Cyril of Jerusalem wrote in his lectures for catechumens, right, he wrote that this is all about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. He, wrote, he writes this, he says, true religion consists of these two elements. They con- it consists of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. God does not accept orthodoxy apart from orthopraxy, but neither does he accept orthopraxy when it is divorced from godly orthodoxy. He says there is a need for a vigilant soul, since there are many who would deceive you by philosophies and empty deceit. And then Matthew Henry would echo this over a thousand years later, and he would write, Philosophies that are empty and deceitful set up the wisdom of man as the wisdom of God. This is what Paul is getting at. Paul doesn't have a problem with philosophy. The issue for the church and the issue for each and every one of us as believers in Christ is with philosophies that are empty and deceitful. And so Paul uses then two terms to give us his reasons why this is a heretical philosophy. He says, first, it's heretical because it's according to human tradition. It's been manufactured by man, he tells us. It hasn't been revealed by God. And for us in the church, this clears up an issue of vital importance, especially one that's been an issue since the Reformation. Paul is telling us, or he's not telling us, that tradition is bad. Tradition isn't bad. Tradition isn't even sinful. 
Traditions can be good, right? We all have our traditions, whether they be family traditions or church traditions. Traditions, in some ways, depending on what they are, can even be holy. But as part of the covenant people of God, our challenge is always to measure our traditions by our rod of measuring, which is what God has revealed to us in his word. That's another word for the word canon is measuring rod. We talked about the measuring rod a little bit this morning in Sunday school. And this is one of the many reasons why we confess when we either sing the creed or we recite the creed together. We confess our desire to be apostolic because we want to be apostolic in our traditions. And because of our desire to be apostolic, we are always to be asking that diagnostic question of, does what we do conform to the teaching of Christ and his apostles that has been revealed in his written word? And the issue here in the Colossians was that this heresy that was trickling in, it was a tradition that was not keeping in the revealed will of God because it denied the clear orthodox revelation of Christ, specifically his bodily incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. The second reason why this was a heretical philosophy is because he says not only is it according to human tradition, but also it's according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. This is kind of the same thing repackaged, but it, but it has a different meaning. Because he says here, there's really two ways we can understand this that aren't at odds with each other. Because first we have to realize that this heresy wasn't pure Gnosticism. And by pure, I'm putting bold, italicized air quotes, right? Because Gnosticism isn't pure, right? It's heretical. But it wasn't strictly Gnosticism. It was a blend of the Judaizer heresy. And we'll see a little bit of that in the last few verses of this text. So we can understand, though, that since it is a blend, but also either one of these heresies, it's very human-centric. It's a human-centric philosophy, especially since Paul has already warned us just previously to be aware and not be taken captive by philosophies that are from a human tradition. But the other way is in this word elemental spirits, which is a similar term used elsewhere to refer to the spiritual powers that are at war against this time of present darkness. This, is, this makes this a direct reference, once again, to spiritual warfare. So the reason these two are not at odds with each other is because all claims to usurp the orthodox gospel of Christ are part of the conflict of the heavenlies. And so then he now comes to verses 9 through 15 with this reminder of orthodoxy because if, if this philosophy is of empty deceit, then... The alternative that he suggests in these next few verses is an orthodox proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he does this again, right? Now we're into the bookshelf itself or into the books that are being held up by these bookends, right? So what he does once again then is to describe the orthodox gospel that he has already gone into extreme detail throughout chapter 1 and where we've looked the last two Sundays. But let's just quickly, and I mean that literally, right? We'll quickly let Paul once again recap what an orthodox proclamation of Christ looks like. In verses 9 and 10, he says this. He says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So here again, he's reminding us that the whole fullness of the divine dwells within the flesh and blood body of Christ Jesus. And this is important for an orthodox view of the gospel for two reasons. We've already looked at it once, but here's, another, here's two more reasons. First, it calls us to reject what he's already mentioned in verse 8. It calls us to reject empty philosophies of the powers and principalities at work in this present darkness. 
But second, as he then continues on in verse 10, he tells us that an orthodox proclamation of the gospel is that we have been filled in Christ. This means that there is nothing else that the Colossians, there's nothing else that we need to look for anywhere else. Any claim, like this Gnostic heresy, any other claim of Christ is useless. Other philosophies are useless. Human traditions are unnecessary because one of the many promises of the gospel, of the true gospel, is that those who have been qualified by God have been filled up in Christ Jesus, and that is enough. So Paul also reminds us here again that Christ, in verse 10, he is the head of all rule and authority. And he's already elaborated on why this is important. Because as the firstborn of all creation, the Lord Jesus is preeminent over all creation. Because everything has been made through him and for him. And as the firstborn of the dead, by virtue of his physical bodily resurrection from the dead, Christ is the head of all of the new creation, including us in the church so that he might be preeminent in everything. Moving on then to verses 11 and 12, Paul reminds us, and we looked at this some last week, there are spiritual and incarnational realities of the Orthodox gospel. He says this in verses 11 and 12. He says, In Christ you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. If you'll recall, if, if you've done any Old Testament reading at all, right, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, right? The sign of, between God and Abraham and his descendants. This became a big deal, especially for new Christians through the Judaizer heresy, especially in Galatians. But Paul tells us here in this verse, he says, we have been circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, but a circum- the circumcision of Christ. Moses referenced this all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. He, the Lord says this, The Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So there is a circumcision of the heart that happens when we come to faith in Christ. But in verse 12, Paul suggests, though, that this covenant reminder is deeper than the spiritual terms. Because God has also given us an incarnational reminder of our circumcision of the heart. And he's given it to us through the new covenant sign of baptism. Again, he says this in verse 12, You have been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. We are buried with Christ in our baptism. We've been raised with Christ through faith in our baptism, indicating to us that this is not just a spiritual reality, but it is an incarnational sensory reminder of our sign of our covenant with God. So when we are in doubt and struggling, when our besetting sins try to take hold, when our old Adam tries to crawl out of the grave, we can remember our baptisms. And we can remind one another of each other's baptisms. Because you have been buried with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. So lean into that assurance of faith. Because just like our qualification in Christ in chapter 1, he tells us here in verse 12, our qualification in Christ, our reconciliation to God through the body and blood of Christ, just like all of this, our baptism is a working of God who raised Christ from the dead. 
And then in verse 13, Paul echoes something we are very familiar with from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He writes this. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So he says, look, you were dead in your sins. You're dead in your trespasses. The uncircumcision of your flesh, you were dead. Not because you were literally physically dead, but you were in reality dead to God because your sin had made you dead to God. God who was life. And from Christ, who is both preeminent over creation and new creation. So, again, just like our qualification in God, it is God who makes us alive together with Christ and has forgiven us all of our trespasses. This is the orthodox gospel. But then in verses 14 and 15, not that it hasn't been interesting so far, but he does get really, it gets kind of interesting in these two verses. Because what Paul does is he, after reminding the Colossians of the necessity of an orthodox view of the gospel... He's, what he's done so far in this letter is he has spoken about God qualifying us in Christ and reconciling us to himself through Christ. But Paul hasn't really explained how God has done this, not in an understandable way. I mean, he's, he has, but he hasn't, if that makes sense. So he gets here to verses 14 and 15, and what Paul does then is he offers us two views of the atonement and how the atonement works. He offers us first, in verse 14, substitutionary atonement. And then in verse 15... Christ is victor or Christus victor. And substitutionary atonement, again, this is just an idea of there is a transfer of debt that is owed. Right? It is owed to God. In this case, this debt is the payment for sin. Paul tells us in Romans 6, right, the wages of sin is death. Right? So this, de- this debt has to be transferred to a substitute, hence substitutionary atonement. Right? In our case, Christ is the substitute. Right? So he says this. Just backing up in verse 13 to get a good run, right? You were dead in your trespasses. God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, this debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul tells us here, he says, an orthodox proclamation of the death of Christ should rightly be described as a legal requirement between mankind and God. And so this legal demand was met, Paul tells us. It was met by canceling that debt, by literally nailing it to Jesus on the cross. We were guilty, and through the most cosmic of executive actions, God cancels our debt. And he cancels it by the cross of Christ. So that we are no longer required to make any sort of payment on that debt, because Christ has paid it all. But then in verse 15, he describes Christus Victor, which if you grew up like me in a, in a typical Protestant background, substitutionary atonement was like, it was, it was it, right? This is where you land every week, right? That's the altar call atonement, right? But we kind of reference Christus Victor, but we don't really talk about it for some reason. And Paul says this, and this is, this is what you have to hold these two together. Because he says this in verse 15. He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It was not just a debt that was paid and dealt with on the cross. Christ was victorious in his cross. In his cross, he disarms the rulers and authorities. He disarms those elemental spirits waging war against his people. And they have been put to utter shame. So consider how this 
helps us deal with heresy, whether that be a Gnostic heresy or the new form of Gnosticism that we're even dealing with in our own culture today. Right? Any ruler, any power, any authority, any elemental spirit that tries to tempt us from an orthodox view of Christ doesn't need to be dealt with. They have already been dealt with. They have been defeated because Christ has been victorious in his cross. Chrysostom wrote this. He said, never was the devil ever in so shameful a plight. At the cross, death received his wound, having met his death from a dead body. And Leo the Great, I love what he says. He says, in an admirable spectacle, Christ carried the trophy of his victory. And on the shoulders of his unconquered endurance, Christ bore the sign of salvation. So now as we come to verses 16 through 19, we come to the end of the shelf, right? And we're back at that next bookend of orthopraxy. Where Paul, once again, he explains, look, through this good orthodoxy that I've just reminded you of, here's how you walk in Christ. And in verse 16, he begins again with the word, therefore. He says, so therefore, therefore, now that you have been reminded of what the true gospel of Christ is, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You'll notice that all of these things he lists, they're very practical, right? I mean, they're, they're very straightforward. They relate, but they relate to good orthopraxy because what Paul does is he challenges the Colossians not to allow themselves to be judged by others, especially when they relate to human traditions that are full of empty deceit. So his concern here is that they and the Spirit, by inspiring this and preserving this for all, time, for all this time, the concern here is that we would not become overwhelmed by those who would slip into the church and try to stress things that would tempt us away from orthodoxy by a false orthopraxy. And there's that distinction here that needs to be made because, again, traditions, like we mentioned earlier, traditions aren't bad. Right? I mean, celebrating feasts and festivals, abstaining or fasting from foods, worshiping on one particular day over another, that's, that ultimately, that's not Paul's concern. He's not even suggesting that holding to traditions is wrong. What he's saying here, the root of the issue, is in calling these practices salvific, in calling these practices as if they can make you saved in Christ. And that's the end game of every heresy. Because they, they tell us only by adhering to these particular practices, by these particular teachings, only then can you be reconciled to God, so they thought. And this is why Paul has spent so much time in this letter laying out the orthodox gospel of Christ. This will be like us at Christ Community telling you when Lent shows up that you have to fast during Lent in order to be redeemed. Or when Advent comes around, that if you don't light an Advent candle, either at church or in your home, then, well, you're going to hell. That's absolutely ludicrous, right? I mean, that's stupid. But more importantly, what it does is that it subtracts from the truth of who Jesus is. And even more so, it subtracts from the sufficiency of his work. You want to fast during Lent? Fine. If you don't, that's cool too. Because Paul tells us in Romans Chapter 14, he says, look, one person might esteem one day as more important than another. One observes a day in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats and eats in honor of the Lord, but one who abstains 
abstains and honor the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. Basically, it doesn't matter. (laughs) But here in Colossians, Paul, in verse 17, he gets directly to the heart of why this kind of distraction, a false practice of the faith, is such a major issue. He says this. He says, these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Feasts and festivals are great. I mean, they are. They're a lot of fun, right? Worshiping on a Friday night or a Wednesday evening or a Tuesday at 3 in the afternoon, that's perfectly fine. And while there's a reason we gather on Sunday mornings, and a very good reason why we gather on Sunday mornings, worshiping on other days or times is perfectly fine as well. Fasting or not fasting is fine. You do you. His point is, just be orthodox. And know that everything... All of these things, all of our practices are but a shadow of the things to come because the substance is Christ, because Christ is preeminent. And then he digs this heresy further in verse 18. He says this. He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. He says again, don't be overwhelmed by those attempting to disqualify us on any of these grounds. And similar to verse 16, he lists these practices that are advocated by this heresy. But the issue is the same. These practices, they do not bring redemption. They do not bring salvation. And all of these practices lead to the same outcome. He says they are puffed up by reason in their sensuous minds. Origen called this spiritual blindness. Chrysostom, who is always way more salty than any of the church fathers, he says this is spiritual arrogance. He wrote this. He said, they haven't seen angels, but yet they act as though they had. And they're puffed up, and they they put forward a false humility. They act and they think carnally, but not spiritually, and their reasoning is simple human reason alone. And this tells us that the problem with all heresies relates to their character as well as the beliefs that they are trying to teach. Because their minds are set on the things of the flesh, not on things above where Christ is. And then finally, in verse 19, and I know we've gone a little longer this morning, so thank you for holding out. But Paul, then, at the end here, gets to the root of all heresy. All teaching that strays from orthodoxy, he says, does not hold fast to the head who is Christ. He finishes with this. He says, puffed up without reason in their sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So consider what this means, and then then we'll come to the table. There are a few places throughout his letters where Paul describes the church as the body of Christ. But here, he actually gives us some interesting details on what this means as we hold to an orthodoxy and we practice the faith rightly. In relation to our orthodoxy, he says, hold, grab onto, cleave to would be the Old Testament term. Hold to the head who is Christ. Because only in relation to Christ can true knowledge be found and can true wisdom be found. And only in Christ can there be a growth that comes from God. But in relation to our orthopraxy, he challenges us to lean into what we have already unpacked from Isaiah earlier this summer. In the head, who is Christ, the whole body, the church, we are nourished and knit together in him. 
So through an orthodox grasp of the gospel and of the person and work of Christ, we are nourished in him and we grow in him, but we also nourish and grow in one another. As we encourage one another to remain stable and steadfast, as we encourage one another to remember our confession of faith, to remember our baptisms, to remain rooted and established and built up in Christ, and to keep one another from becoming captives to the empty promises of deceitful philosophies. And so, brothers and sisters, hold fast to your confession. Remember your baptism and abound in thanksgiving. May God edify his church and be blessed and glorified by the proclamation of his word. Amen.